0: you know, rethink some of this. So, all right, I've got work. I don't really love at a firm. Maybe I don't really love. What are some things though I can do? So maybe for example, you've got a budget to do some business development, right? Or maybe you've got a marketing department that will help you with some initiatives. So try stuff, try doing stuff differently and be okay with failing and just see that as free failure on the firm's dime. I tried this. It didn't work. I want to run an event. You know, if you haven't ever hosted your own event, you should be, Right In this day and age, you literally need a Zoom account or a Teams account or whatever, and that's it. And if nobody shows up, then nobody shows up.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Build Your Book podcast. And on this show, we talk about how lawyers can build a solid book of business authentically and stress-free for greater financial success, fulfillment, and peace of mind. I'm your host, Double Tank. Let's get started. Aaron, excited to have you on as always. Um, you've had a huge career change this week. You know, tell us all about it. What made you want to make this change? What you're looking forward to, but you know, I think much more importantly. I'd like to understand a bit about your psychology, your mindset, and how you approach this whole transition.
0: Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. It's, it's been a really crazy week. Would, would not recommend trying to switch firms, literally, uh, you know, leaving a firm one day, starting at a new firm the next day, while trying to start a business that launches the next week. Would not recommend that to anybody, um, but it's been great. So as, as you alluded to, so I left air Burles on Monday, May 31st was my last day, and I started on my new firm, Renault & Co. on Tuesday. And it's, it's been really great. I mean, I think the first week is always a challenge to some extent because you're getting used to new systems, new people, new ways of doing things. But, but one of the reasons I wanted to make this move uh, was to do things a little bit more my way, you know, in a way that was more authentic for me and where that was encouraged and with a group of people that, that thought the same way. And so you know, it's a law firm, uh, it's about nine or 10 lawyers at this point based out of Quebec and in Ontario, but they're running a lot more like a tech company. So process, so important to us. Uh, legal tech using technology so important to us. So everything they're doing is just so different than what I'm used to at a bigger firm, and I mean that in the best possible way. Uh, and I'm so excited about you know all these ideas I have, they have about how we can get better and do things more. So even this week, you know, I was on a call with a legal tech company that we're working with uh, on our on our document automation platform, which is you know being used both internally and externally. That definitely didn't exist at my old firm. Uh, aggressive use of technology internally. Uh, from PipeDrive, drive, you know, real CRM so that we can keep track of stuff properly and all the automations, uh, even just the simplest thing like calendar booking, which I wanted to be doing, you know, using Calendly or Microsoft bookings or some equivalent of my old firm and was just not allowed to do, apparently it was not a priority to people. Even though I spend, you know, three, four or five hours a day on calls. Now I've got everything linked beautifully. I've got four or five different links I can send them out to the right person. They respond automatically books, the meeting filters into our CRM, we're tracking, everything's automated. And it's great. We're running like a real business. And that to me was so exciting, is I like being a lawyer, but I wanted to do it in a way that leveraged technology uh, in a different way, in a more modern way, and really just provide better service. So I'm really excited about that. But this is a change, you know that that's a big one. I spent the entirety of my legal career so far at a big firm from 1L, 2L, articling, being an associate, and then becoming an equity partner. And it was a tough decision to make. And I think anyone who's thinking about making a change, you know, these are not things that you just do overnight. There was a lot of thought, a lot of doubt, a lot of what ifs that went into that process. Uh, But eventually I reached a point where it just became a no brainer. And it's it's a choice that I I started realizing after I made it, I realized this is not a choice I'm going to regret. And we're one weekend and I have no doubt at all, this is the right choice. But I will say, you know, the building blocks for this decision have have been in the works for the past, you know, eight, nine, 10 months, even the last year. And I really think it's important for anyone listening who's thinking about making a move or wants to make a move to be thinking about, all right, what do I do to put myself in a position to succeed after I make that move, but doing that now? And, and that's something you can do with pretty low risk. And maybe we can get into that a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I think the points you're bringing up are, are extremely important. You know, I, I talk to lawyers on a, on a, almost a daily basis now uh, where they come to me and they're asking, well, you know, I want to do things differently. Can I do it? And they're they're waiting for permission. They're asking for permission. And what you're pretty much saying is that, yes, it is possible. You have to plan for it. You have to prepare for it. The doubts, the questions, you know, that, that stuff that keeps you up at night uh, with the fear, all that stuff is actually pretty darn manageable. Um, And so, yeah, I'd love to hear about some of the building blocks that you have been arranging over the last year or so um, and how strategic you were about it. Was it you just tinkering around and trying to like feel for it or was it something quite strategic that you were thinking about? Well, first I got to do this, then I got to do that. Um, And yeah, just tell us about that whole process of how you managed this transition.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I think you know, I remember in my in my first year as a lawyer, we we had a, a retreat for the associates. Uh, we did those maybe every three or four years, and we were you know, I, I didn't know a lot of the partners at the time, you know, a, as well as I do now, you know, on a personal level, and we had some really transparent, great conversations. And I mean, it was sort of amazing to me how many people you would never expect it, but but pretty much everyone has thought about leaving their current firm, whether it's a first year lawyer, a fifth year lawyer, a lawyer who's been there for 30 years, they've all contemplated at various points leaving, and for different reasons, right? For some people, it's a money thing. For other people, it's a quality of life, you know, a family uh, thing, a work life balance, you name it. But pretty much everyone has gone through it and it's not talked about enough, and that's a shame. And it's something I'm planning on talking about a little bit more, just sort of you know that process, that thinking that went into it, those doubts, all of that stuff, which is, which is totally normal. And I think for a lot of us, or maybe I'm just speaking for myself personally, you know it's this fear of like, can I do this? Can I do this on my own? Can I do this at a small firm? am I okay without that safety net? And that safety net could be colleagues who are experts that you know you you can just talk to whenever you need. It could be monetarily. I think there's a huge fear for a lot of people uh, when they leave big law, especially, that they're not going to be able to make as much money and their lifestyle is going to suffer. And maybe they've got golden handcuffs and things like that. And in the old days, I think that was probably true. But I think these days, you know, when you look at a modern law firm, especially a boutique firm, you don't need an office, and if you have one, it doesn't need to be expensive. It could be a WeWork, could be a, you know a really small space. Obviously, you could be working from home. You're gonna need some software. There's tons of really great, affordable stuff out there, and that's about it. You know, maybe you hire an assistant. You could do a virtual assistant or or or, or somebody based here. Maybe you hire an associate or two. But at the end of the day, if you're leaving and you have clients, which is the key, you can run a really, really profitable. Um, venture or, or boutique firm, or start it on your own, in a way that I don't think you could have done quite as easily in the past. And that's the really exciting part, I think, is if you have that client base, and it doesn't have to be huge, it suddenly opens up all these options. And so for me, it was you know, do I start my own firm? And that was never really on the radar until at some point last year when someone suggested it to me, and I thought, oh, I never even thought about this before, because you know, a few years ago, didn't have the, the you know the level of clients I do now, and that definitely wouldn't have been an option or certainly not a profitable one. Uh, but but to me, I also like working with people. I wanted to work with people that were like-minded. And so this was a great opportunity. But but really, again, it comes down to having some, some clients and having done some of this work in advance. And I think the key there was in the past year, two years, three years, a lot of stuff I wasn't getting paid for, that I was doing helping other lawyers uh, internally, whether it was you know hundreds of pitches for them, building out p- marketing pipelines and things like that, or just, you know, all the legal tech work I was doing, I was getting all these building blocks in place. There was no deliberate strategy at the time. But what I started realizing last year, as I started thinking about making a move is, wow, you know, I've built some of these skills inadvertently that are going to be really, really powerful. I've spent a lot of time doing this. And so what I always encourage people to do is, you know, if you think you want to make a move, say to yourself, you know, what am I most scared about? What are my biggest fears? And if you're worried, for example, well, how am I going to get clients? Then in your current role at your current firm, spend time trying to get clients now, right? Try new things, do stuff because you have a steady paycheck, presumably. And if you're bringing in work, your current firm will be happy. But if you're failing, that's okay. Those lessons are free. They only cost you time because you're getting that salary uh, as an associate. You know, your paycheck comes in. Whereas if you start your own firm with no clients, that's a big risk. And I know plenty of people who have done that, some successfully, some not. But what you really want to do is be in a position where you've built up the loyalty of your client base and built up enough clients where if you decide, you know what, I want to do this differently, you can much more comfortably make the move. Because if you look at the math, you know, at my my my, my old firm, spilling, let's say, you know, a healthy amount of money per hour, I was seeing a fraction, a fraction of that, right? And I was doing the math going, this model makes a lot of sense if you don't have your own clients, right? Let's say you're going to make, you know, I'm just going to use a random number, $150,000 a year you have no clients of your own, it's not the worst deal. I mean, sure, you can say maybe you're overworked and they're, they're they're making a lot of money off you. But at the end of the day, you couldn't do that yourself. But if you have your own clients, you start doing the math and saying, wait a second here, if I'm bringing in $500,000 a year of business and billing you know, 1,500, 2,000 hours, you, sh- you as the firm sure seem like you're getting a great deal. And firms thrive off people's fear of leaving right? They know that you're scared to leave, and they're giving you this guaranteed salary. Um, but at the end of the day, if you truly aren't passionate about what you're doing, or where you're doing it, you know, the key to doing it your way is definitely having your own book it opens up every possibility for you.
1: I think you raised some really interesting points, the, the role of technology, the role of tools we have now, where it's easier than ever, um, where it's safer than ever to strike out on your own, to do your own thing, to be your own boss, be an entrepreneur, uh, take their challenges, take the risks, do it your own way. Um, a lot of the old guard doesn't really necess- doesn't want you to take this step because it's um, in some ways a threat to the old model of, of practicing law. But th- all the innovation, all the interesting things, the more humane way of practicing law, the ability to really develop deep client relationships, it's all possible when you go out there and build something out yourself. You know, I would really like to dig into this idea of of you know being a lifer, sticking to sticking inside a big law firm for a long time. There's nothing wrong with that, but I wonder from you know, all those people that you talked to who've contemplated, who really thought about it, or even frustrated or disgruntled working at a big law firm and they're sticking it out. I wonder what's different about them. I, I'd like to from your what's your impression of what keeps them there?
0: It's a great point. I think I think there's two big things. The first one is money. And you know, it's been interesting as I talk to a lot of people as I leave, and I've been speaking to so many people in the past year just in general. But money is a big driver, and I think we can't underestimate that. There are tons of blogs out there. There are people who literally all they do is coach you know lawyers who leave big law on how to do it from a financial standpoint, especially in the us. I mean u s. big law associates make a lot of money. You know, if you're at a good firm, when I say good firm, I mean a big firm. Uh, coming out of law school, you could be making one hundred and eighty thousand dollars American in your first year. That is a stupid amount of money. And yes, you know, you may have a lot of law school debt, but I mean that's your starting salary and you're working for it. Don't get me wrong. But there's a lot of money. You can imagine you go work for the government, you go work somewhere else, you're probably taking a pay cut. And so obviously there's lots of advice, including, you know, not living beyond your means and not getting, you know, if if you're living all the way up at your salary and you need that salary, it certainly limits your exit opportunities. But I think the old advice used to be, you know, if you're if you're leaving a firm, you're leaving money on the table. And that just isn't necessarily true anymore. It is definitely more true as an associate. You know, if you're making a lot of money because you've been in a firm for a long time and going in-house, there's a decent chance, you know, you're taking a pay cut, but it should be a stable enough thing where you're, you're transitioning to working less, for example, or maybe getting some upside, whether it's options or stock in the company. But I think at the partner level, there is this fear. And it was amazing some of the people I talked to who make, you know, a healthy, healthy amount of money, who's just want more or need more or feel like they can't survive without it. And I think part of it is, you know, we're just so conditioned as lawyers, like you're only as good as your last year. And there's just this fear of not having enough. You know, you don't have a retirement, you know, you don't have a pension usually, you don't have any of those things. So you're self-funding that. But at the end of the day, you know, so part of that fear, you say, well, they feel this need to make this level of money and and teach their own. Everyone has their own needs. We all come from different backgrounds. But there's this implied belief that the only place you can make that level of money is at a big law firm or or at a traditional law firm. And I'm I'm not someone who's driven by money quite as much as as some other people, as I realized from some of these conversations. I care about it. Don't get me wrong, but my number one goal is not to be the richest person in the world, you know. And I've seen the sacrifices so many people make about doing work they don't actually like. Like there's most lawyers don't actually like what they do, but they're afraid to leave. And so money is a big one. And so I think, you know, again, if you run the math and say, okay, well, how much am I charging per hour? How many hours am I billing? How much is my total revenue for the firm? Okay. How many hours would I have to bill if I could charge that same hourly rate, but do it myself? Let's pretend you had no overhead for a second. And you just run that math. What you start realizing is you can do a whole lot less work and make the same amount of money. And if you're setting up your, your new venture or joining a firm with low overhead, it is absolutely doable where you can have what you want. You know, you can keep that paycheck or even increase that paycheck and you can work in a way that's more you know in line with your values and hopefully work a lot less. So money does not have to be this thing that limits you. In fact, I would argue, you know, the reason these firms are making so much money and keeping so many people is they just have more and more people who are afraid of taking any risk, right? The people who are ambitious, who realize there's a better way, they leave. And so it probably actually contributes to a less innovative culture over time because you've got the people that are afraid of making a move who are sticking around. So to sum all that up, you know, do the math. And if you have your own client base, doesn't even have to be an enormous client base. If you're getting all that money instead of your former firm, you don't need as many clients as people realize. The second piece is fear and just fear of change, whether it's the money part, whether it's I'm not going to be good enough, whether it's how do I do all the little things, all the administrative stuff. Because when you work at a bigger firm, these things are sort of just done for you, right? You've got a department for this, a department for that. But I can tell you, and I'm hearing this over and over again from people I know who have started their own firms recently or joined smaller firms, the tech out there is pretty good these days. You know, you want to accept payments? Great. You know, you just get this add-in. You want to use a practice management software? There's a couple of great ones out there. It's not hard. They're all SaaS-based. They're all software. They're not expensive. And it's really, there's a great community of people out there, you know, people who have started their own firms or, or working at small firms who are more than happy to share that wisdom with you, right? They've all been there and they wanna make you comfortable. So this fear of change, this what if, you know, I think the what if is the big thing for most people, and it's not as scary in reality as as, as people think. There are support out there, there are resources out there, there are people who wanna help, and you don't have to be beholden to a bigger firm or your traditional firm. But what I will say, just to wrap up this thought, and then I'll let you uh, jump in, Devil, is while you're at your current firm, you know, going back to this point from before, start doing the stuff that you're worried about. So maybe just write out a list of here are the things I'm worried about and start doing as many of them as you can. Right. So if you're worried about not having enough clients, then you better or you'd be smart to at least start trying some of these strategies at your current firm and test them out. Because I can tell you when I started doing business development, and a lot of these pitches, it was nowhere near as refined as I am now. And obviously, there's still so much room for improvement. But I got a lot of these learnings, these failings, these mistakes out of the way when it wasn't my own money and I got to play with house money, and that's a pretty good way to do things.
1: You raised some incredible points. Um, I, I wanted to step back here for a moment and talk about um, some of the components that makes for a rewarding a, a job, a rewarding career, that sort of thing. Um, so many points that you brought up just you know, ring so true for, for all the people that I, I talk to, I serve, uh, the clients that I help. Um, there's an incredible study done by um, the, the University of Oxford. It's um, it's a project called the 80,000 Hours um, website. It's called 80,000Hours.org. I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, but it's a study of what makes for a rewarding job, what makes for a dream job, what makes you want to get up in the morning and really like what you do. And you raised that point really well. It's not just about the money. You'd be quite surprised at the amount of money you need and, and how easy it is to, to reach that number. Um, so you know what are some of the components that make for a an actually satisfying job? You know, people come to me and they're asking me that, can I do this? Can I actually do that? They're disillusioned by the practice of law, and they're feeling this dissatisfaction. They don't know what's wrong with them, and they're trying to kind of you know strike gold here, trying to reshape them themselves. And uh, what the the University of Oxford found, and, and I think they they looked at thousands of people, they try to understand what makes for a, a fulfilling job is, well, first of all, the work has to be engaging. And I think when you strike out on your own and or you set up the circumstances where you are in control, you have the freedom to decide how you want to do your work. You have clear tasks. You get a variety of different types of tasks. I think people are driven by variety. And they get some feedback, right? They're 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 they get immediate feedback from their clients, um, and I think that's really empowering. So work that's engaging—that's the first component of what makes for a fulfilling job. The second part of it is work that helps others. Do you feel like you're actually helping people in the way that they want to be helped, or in the way that you can best serve them? Um, that's one of the second components of of creating a fulfilling job for yourself. Number three, it's work that you're good at, and, and I loved what you as you're describing it, Aaron, um, you were learning things, you were tinkering, you were curious, you were dipping your toes in and all the things that made you curious. And by doing that, you became good at it. And so that's work that you're good at. Um, Number four, I think this is something that's underestimated, but work with supportive colleagues. I think we've been a lot of people that I talk to are are in situations at big law firms where they actually detest some of the people that they work with. and they can't, obviously, they need to put up a bit of a charade there to, to you know, be cordial and all that sort of stuff, but they actually don't find their colleagues to be all that supportive. Um, that's not always the case, but that is the case sometimes. Um, number five, it's the lack of major negatives. Do you have a long commute? Um I don't think that's too much of an issue nowadays, but it it could be an issue for for people as the economy opens up. I'm, I'm based out of the u s. right now, and um, people are driving to work. People are attending weddings. they're they're flying all over the country, and you know work is sort of going back to normal. Um, if you feel the pay is unfair, and uh, a lot of people do feel that way that the these big law firms are making sort of all the money off of their backs, and they're seeing a very, very small fraction of it. If you feel that way, then you're going to have some trouble in being satisfied at the job. Um, job insecurities, that is that a thing? You know, we saw that last year with COVID. Um, a lot of people were dead weight at these big firms because they really weren't kind of uh, um, contributing as much as they could in terms of business development, bringing in clients, retaining clients um, and clients themselves were going through a tough time. And if you weren't innovative, if you weren't creative, if you weren't thinking about, well, how can I create value for my clients at a time like this? your job could have been axed. And so if you can design your job where there are these major negatives are not there, um, then that makes for a, a very important part of sort of re- reshaping your, your career. And finally, work that fits the rest of your life. And, and this is about the work-life balance. Uh, this is about having time for your kids, your family. Um, it might just be the, the ability to pursue your own hobbies. Does it give you a chance to travel? Does it give you a chance to do uh, uh, you know, work remotely from whatever corner corner of the world that you want to live in. Um, I think these are the component. This is the this is what the research says. This is what makes for a satisfying job. This is what makes for a rewarding job, a dream job. And what you're saying, Aaron, is that you can construct this. You can construct it yourself if you take the steps. If you think strategically, and the fears that come up, and this these fears seem natural at the time, but they're manageable. You can plan around them. You can, if you if you think about it deeply enough um, and plan for it, you can make the transition a lot more seamless, a lot more uh, uh, risk free than people think. So, you know that that's what I was thinking about it. This eighty thousand hour study is absolutely fascinating. That's roughly the amount of time you're going to spend at your job, doing your work, just working on your career. You know, once again, we're assuming the forty hour, the forty years um, out of college. You're going to be working. Uh, you know, typically 40 hours a week, all that sort of stuff. Uh, although I know those numbers are kind of um, no longer that that much valid, but let's just assume 80,000 hours. Um, that's what you're going to come up with. And if you're gonna, if you're going to be spending your time not fulfilling, not feeling fulfilled, if if you're if you're doing work that's not engaging, if you're doing work that where you don't feel you're helping others, if you're doing work that you're not good at, where you're not surrounded by good colleagues. Um, where there are a lot of ma- these major negatives in your life, or there's these long commutes, and you feel the pay is unfair, and it doesn't fit with the rest of your life, what's the point? You know, in today's day and age, it's easier than ever to to reshape your life, to plan for it, to manage these things. Uh, Why not take that action? Why not take that first step? It's easier than ever. And um, I love that about your story, Aaron. Um, I'll I'll pass it back to you. I don't know if any of this makes makes any sense.
0: No, it makes a ton of sense other than the 40 hours a week working. I mean, what are you you talking (laughs) about? That sounds like a dream week for me, but uh, (laughs) I'm just teasing there. But, you know, we've seen in Canada, for example, tons of younger lawyers making moves recently from big firms to mid-size and mid-size to big and small to big and all over the place. And then a bunch, a, a bunch of people go into the U.S. because they're saying, if I'm working this much, may as well get paid more. You know, they're, they're they're fixing the money variable at least uh, from from a job satisfaction happiness standpoint. Not sure that they're solving anything. Probably getting worse. But you know, in the temporary period, why not make more money? That's that's a reasonable argument. I think at the end of the day, as I said before, it really comes down to, you know, where do you want to be? What do you want to do? And then how are you going to get there? And it's really tempting to think things are just going to work themselves out, and people like myself sometimes get lucky, or things just fall into place over time. But I mean, the ability to do what I'm doing now is also the result of all this non-billable stuff, all this stuff I did at my old firm that you know ended up benefiting me. And so I really think you you want to reframe. If you don't like your job currently, that's great. I mean, that's not ideal, but it is what it is. But you know, how can you how can you reframe that? And there's this example I'm picturing in Seattle at Pike's Place Market. Um, it's, it's one of these commonly cited things where it's this like fish stall and you can oh, Google yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I wasn't planning on talking about this, so I'm going to stumble a bit here, but basically they took this pretty monotonous thing. They're selling literally fish in a tourist market and they become world renowned. And they did that by having fun on the job. So they will throw the fish around. They will holler at each other. And and I went there a couple of years ago. I was in Seattle for the first time and it was really cool to see. It became actually a tourist attraction, but they took something that was, not you know the world's most sexy job you know slicing up fish and selling them at a retail counter and made into something that was a lot more fun and a lot more enjoyable where people wanted to work and where people like you and me actually wanted to go to it's a fish counter there's nothing that special about what they're selling but it's their attitude towards what they're doing and so i'm not saying you need you're gonna magically like your job what i am saying is okay how can i you know rethink some of this so all right i've got work i don't really love at a firm maybe i don't really love What are some things, though, I can do? So maybe, for example, you've got a budget to do some business development. right? Or maybe you've got a marketing department that will help you with some initiatives. So try stuff. Try doing stuff differently and be okay with failing. And just see that as free failure on the firm's dime. I tried this. It didn't work. I want to run an event. You know, if you haven't ever hosted your own event, you should be, right? In this day and age, you literally need a Zoom account or a Teams account or whatever. And that's it. And if nobody shows up, then nobody shows up. So this summer, for example, uh, as as part of this network, we were part of, uh, I agreed to co-host a couple events and we did one at, I did three events in 24 hours and we had one, actually, this isn't the story. Those are, those are good ones, but let me, let me take that one back. We hosted an event, myself and a colleague for a number of our clients in a specific area. And we thought, you know what? I wanna introduce these clients to each other. You know, they're all doing similar kinds of things. Wouldn't it be a smart move on our end to help facilitate some of those introductions? So we set up this meeting and quite frankly, not rocket science. You create an invite, you send it out to people, you know, you create the meeting in zoom first or whatever. And then on the day of event you host it. It was meant to be pretty informal. So we had a rough game plan of how the event was going to run when we went live and we're going to do breakout rooms and a bunch of stuff. And so people are trickling in very slowly at the beginning. And so I'm just, you know, making some small talk, keeping the conversation going. And let's say the event was supposed to start at three o'clock. I'm you know I'm checking the time periodically and it's you know like 3:10 and I'm like okay we're not getting more people. <laughs> this is going to be a six person event where we had you know 45 people RSVP and sent out invites to you know 250 people or whatever the case was. So, you know pivoted on the fly, turned it into actually a really good conversation, it became a much more intimate conversation than we had intended, but that was okay. Right? We learned a bunch of lessons. Uh, we had some good conversations and we transitioned that into a success right? And we've gotten much more work out of those people and built stronger relationships with them. So did we fail? Depends how you look at it. In some ways, complete failure. In other ways, not so much. But the point is we were trying new stuff. And I'll tell you, you know, we did another initiative, myself and a colleague earlier in the pandemic, where we did some outreach to a bunch of industries where we were sort of thinking in the early days of COVID, where I don't think most of us had good foresight on what the world was going to look like now and the changes that were going to happen. So we did some outreach to some industries that seemed like obvious ones at the time that might need some legal help based on changes that were going on. And that campaign, spectacular failure, just a complete disaster. We got a couple, couple phone calls out of it. None of them went anywhere. We did another one where we did some outreach uh, on the patent side. My old firm had a big patent practice and we figured let's try to build some of these international relationships. So we did a ton of outreach to Mexico, for example, and we booked all these calls. Uh, because our patent agents had told us, you know, we're not getting a lot of work from our Mexican patent agents. So we'd love to be able to, you know, get more work from them. We feel like we're only sending work out. So we booked all these calls and we're having them. And it became pretty clear early on why we weren't getting any work. Mexico, uh, Mexican companies rarely (laughs) file any patents in Canada. (laughs) They're much more interested in Latin America or maybe the US. Mexico is a net net importer, we'll call it of patents. So it's foreign companies that are patenting in Mexico. It's rarely the other way around. So it wasn't that our existing patent agents we were working with in Mexico were sending work elsewhere. They just had no work to send out. So this is a complete waste of our time. We had all these meetings booked, and we still did, it. We still did them because it didn't hurt to build the relationships and we felt bad. But that was an example of just a complete waste of time. But we learned a good lesson, right? And we also got some practice in these conversations and doing these things. So you can look at it as a failure, or you can look at it and say, all I did was waste a bit of time. I met some people and I learned some good lessons. And I think you got to make those mistakes and get them out of the way. Don't wait to do it until you're ready to strike out on your own or leave your firm. You can do them for free at your current firm. I love that
1: about um, the way you reframe things. I think that for the last year and a half or so that I've been working with lawyers, I've been stunned by how many lawyers really have this binary approach to everything that they do something is a failure or it's a success. And um, that is such a a destructive way of looking at the world. Um, What I love about uh, the whole technology industry is that uh, we don't approach it like that. Everything is an experiment. Everything is a small bet. Everything is a a calculated risk that you're taking to see, well, okay, what happens if, if I just make this one little thing? Everything is a small experiment as well. Uh, and I love that about how you kind of constructed this whole thing. You know, let's do a small bet. Let's make a small event here. Let's do a, a small LinkedIn post, right? That's how you got started. You, you started off, everything started off with the first LinkedIn post. And then you kind of comp, build on that. It, it, it all starts snowballing and you end up landing where you are right now. Where you, from the outside, you look like this giant success. You've had, you know, you become a partner at such a young age. You, you're, you're making these bold moves. You're an influencer in the whole LinkedIn space. But at, at the heart of it, it's just these small bets that you're making. You're making these small chances, you're taking these small ex, you're conducting these small little experiments, you're learning from them, and you're moving on. And if something didn't work, whatever. That that's not a big deal. That's no chip off your shoulder. And I love that approach. And that's the approach that the tech companies play. Um, and it's so destructive when lawyers do not adopt that, where they think everything is is a success or a failure. And if it's a failure, that's that's somehow an indictment on their own character, their own abilities, their their intelligence, or something like that. And I think more lawyers need to embrace the mindset that you just talked about. Um,
0: yeah, and, 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 know, I'm, but, I'm just thinking. You know, to, oh, go, go ahead, ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was thinking back to another uh, you know failure of a campaign, and again, not so much a failure, but but just a good example. You know, we did a bunch of outreach. Uh, you know, April, let's call it uh, 2020. So again, into the pandemic. You know, weren't able to meet people in person, weren't able to go on trips to other places where some lawyers would have traditionally done business development. And so we figured, okay, you know, let's do some outreach to, to different parts of the US, for example. And so we, we, you know, we set up all these meetings or tried to set up these meetings, ran a campaign, and we actually got on a bunch of calls with some great people and, and, and built some actually good relationships. I've ever sent work their way, uh, which has been great because, you know, one of the nice things about even if I'm trying to get inbound work from them, really at the end of the day, I'm trying to build relationships. And a number of my clients or friends have needed stuff in different jurisdictions in the US. And it's been great to go, actually, I've got the perfect person for you. You know, I spoke to this guy in July. We've had some follow-up, definitely recommend, you know, you chat with them. So that's been helpful in that. And don't underestimate the value you can provide to your clients by knowing people to refer them to who can do the work. But what I really wanted to get at too with this sort of story is the follow-up where that was something I was not doing a good job of, um, in this early outreach. So, you know, you send out a ton of emails, maybe you hop on a bunch of calls, great. Okay, but as we've talked about in a prior episode, I think you're not done there and you don't build a relationship off one phone call. And I think one of the things we did not do a good job of was making sure we were following up, Uh, at least originally. We're doing a really bad job of that. And then the question becomes, how do I do this at scale in an authentic way? So we got a little bit smarter and we said, okay, you know what? Like we we need to be in touch with these people more, we want to add value to them. So we started a couple of different newsletters targeting different groups, right? So for the, the the US relationships, like US lawyer relationships, you know, we'd send them updates on, you know, once every couple months, you know, here's what's happening in Canada, just so you know, and you know, here are some things going on here. So we tried to find, you know, a one-to-many solution where we could blast out a newsletter to targeted groups of people uh, to remind them we existed, but also to add some value. But I think the key here is really thinking about, okay, what's that follow-up look like? Because you're not done after that first call, And you have to find a way to do that at scale. So that could be through some automated email campaigns. That could be through some newsletters. But at the end of the day, I don't think it's rocket science. You know, you connect with people. You want to build those relationships. And obviously, it's great to hop on follow up calls. And we've done that with many, many people. But you also just need to find a way to add value at scale. And you have to be thinking about this because your time is valuable. And it's great that if you have unlimited time to do this, but the reality is we're all working and probably working a lot or way too much And so systematizing these things, creating processes and just thinking about, okay, if I'm hoping to have this goal result from this behavior, what do I need to do? How would I feel on the other end, right? If somebody called me in April, 2020, are they going to be front of mind right now if they haven't followed up since? And of course the answer is no, not unless you're seeing them, you know, posting on LinkedIn or on, on social media or meeting them at a conference, they're not front of mind whatsoever. So I think for people who are doing any kind of outreach, Think about it from the recipient's perspective. Think about how many people have called you or emailed you that you've completely forgotten about and ask yourself: is that, you know, Is do you want to be that person? Or am I, if you're going to spend this time, do it properly? It doesn't have to be a lot of time, but you just need a good process, a good system. And that's, that's half the battle for sure.
1: I think these are a great punch. We're going to need to dig into them a lot more. The actual tactics. I think over the last couple of episodes, we've been spending a lot of time discussing big picture things. Uh, talking about mindset talking about the art of reinvention um the philosophies underlying so much change but now we're getting into the more strategic and more ta- tactical things um i think we want to keep listening to stories and over the next couple of episodes we're gonna have a bunch of guests joining us um who are who are excited to share their stories some of the more strategic uh, uh ideas that they have even tactical things that they do to execute on um their their positions um it's really exciting, all the changes that you're going through right now, Aaron, and, and you know, best of luck to you as you go through these changes. Um, and you know, as always, we're going to keep all these, the resources we talked about, the fish philosophy, uh, 80,000 hours, all of these different ideas. I'm going to put in the show notes so you can look at it as well. Um, Aaron, I believe you also have an announcement that you wanted to make
0: i do so uh and i've been guest hosting this podcast for the last few weeks and it's been a pleasure and and the more we talked, the more i think we both thought let's let's make this a regular thing so i'm going to be joining you as a a co-host and joining build your book to continue to build out on this amazing idea and this vision you have we've got a ton of ideas in store uh that we're going to be working on over the next couple months so really excited about that and i'm really excited also about the guests we have we've got some incredible lawyers who are doing things differently and people who have made these kind of pivots in the last year two years three years where they were just like i was three years ago you know going through the system grinding my way through not envisioning having my own clients leaving a firm you know feeling sort of like i, I had no other choice but to stay in the system and these are all people that have done stuff differently and, and every one of them has a different story on how they've done it but the key is you know they they took some risks you know conservative risks they tried some stuff that was new and I think all of them, you know, going back to my points from before, did this in their prior roles. They were doing stuff differently there. And they said, you know what? I've done this. My current environment isn't doing it for me. Let me either do this on the side on a more regular basis, or let me leave my current role and try it somewhere else. But each of them, completely different background, completely different strategies. But I'm really excited to, to hear from them all. And I think everyone listening will be too. So really excited about that and so glad to be officially a part of the Build Your Book team.
1: I'm really excited as well. Excited for the, all these episodes uh, coming up with all these different guests. As always, if you have any questions, send us an email at podcast.buildyourbook.org. At I'm happy to include your questions, your comments, all that sort of stuff. And um, yeah, great to have you on our team. We'll catch you next week. Take care. Sounds great. Take care, everybody. For show notes from this episode and all previous ones, go to buildyourbook.org slash podcast. Make sure to subscribe to it on Apple iTunes, Google, Spotify, or wherever it is that you find your podcast from. Share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you have any questions you'd like us to cover, send us a message on podcast at buildyourbook.org. And if you'd like personalized coaching to help you build your book of business, go on to buildyourbook.org slash contact. Until next week, take care.